Pray with me here for a moment. Lord, as we, with your followers around the world tonight, reflect on the cross, the most significant event in all of history, we pray, Lord, that your spirit would be here in this place and with all others who are reflecting on the meaning of the cross. And as we just sang, Lord, we pray that our eyes would be opened to see the power of your love that led you to the cross. And help us, God, to receive it more deeply, more passionately than we've ever received it before. Help us never to get used to this. Never. And be with us now. Do your work. In this place with these people, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. My name is Greg Boyd. I'm a senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. And uh, it's good to see you all here tonight to just reflect on the cross, this night in which Jesus gave his life for the sin of each one of us, for the sin of all human beings. What we'd like to do tonight is this. We're going to have three little sort of reflections, mini-sermons. And... um, uh, we'll sprinkle in some worship between those three mini-sermons, those reflections. And they're all going to be about Marys. The perspective of three different Marys on the cross. It's somewhat significant that the Gospels tell us that while most of the people who followed Jesus from town to town were men, there is a number of women who are also part of his entourage, including these three Marys. It's very significant that when he died... All the men were gone, except for John, but all the women were there. On Easter morning, all the men were gone, but all the women were there. So we're going to reflect on three different Marys and their perspective on the cross. The first one I'd like to speak about is Mary, the mother of Jesus. And by the way, the art that we'll be showing here tonight on each of these Marys comes from Daniel Bonella, a friend of mine. Uh, who's a fantastic artist. If you want to find out more about his art, you can just Google him and get on his website. And he's painted some portraits of of each one of these Marys. Mary, the mother of Jesus. I've got to wonder, we've got to wonder what Mary was feeling when she looked upon her son being crucified. For everybody else who was looking upon Jesus, the most they would know is that this was God's son. They'd have some understanding of that. This was God's son, but... For Mary alone, this was not only God's son, as important as that is, but this was, this was her own son. What must it have been like for Mary to watch her own son be mocked and beaten and spit upon and whipped and then crucified? I can't imagine an experience more horrifying or painful than for a parent to have to watch their child go through that. Of all the people observing the crucifixion that night, I doubt any could understand better than Mary the pain that God the Father was going through during the crucifixion. We usually focus on the suffering of Jesus, and that is certainly important, but it's also the case that God the Father was suffering at least as much, a parental kind of pain as he had to deliver his son over to evil and abusing human beings and angelic powers. And no one could appreciate the pain of the father's 
parental travail like Mary. She and God the Father had that in common that night. And I wonder, I can imagine how Mary, as Jesus' mother, how badly she would want to intervene, how her maternal instinct would just kick in and try to spare her son from some of what he was going through, but she was helpless. The Romans would strip, just to humiliate people, would strip people naked. We are more polite, and we put a, a cloth around Jesus, but they were crucified naked. And I imagine Mary, probably the only one in the crowd was even thinking about this, but as they took that off of Jesus, a mother would want to hide her son's shame, but she couldn't do anything. And when they spit on Jesus, her maternal instinct would just be to wipe, wipe him clean. And she'd done so much throughout his life when he would spill or whatever, but she was helpless. She couldn't do anything. I mean, he was bleeding. How badly? Just her maternal instinct would have compelled her to put a bandage on him and to wipe off the blood, but she was helpless. And think for a moment of the confusion that must have raced through Mary's mind as Jesus was being tortured and crucified. The angel, 33 years earlier, had told her that she would supernaturally conceive a son and that he would grow up to be the ruler of all people and that he would bring peace and justice to the world. Now he was dying a violent, unjust death. And there's no ruling and there's no peace. And there's no justice. There's no victory. And Mary had to be wondering, how is this possible? The angel had promised her 33 years earlier that she would be called blessed among all women. But surely right now she felt like she was the most cursed of all women. I wonder if she thought, was this some kind of a sick joke? Was she being just sort of propped up to have a dagger pierce her heart? Was this some sort of a cosmic plan that was against her? I wonder if she even wondered at some point, was that really an angel of God that spoke those things to me? Maybe, maybe I got it wrong. Maybe it was actually an evil plan. Nothing had gone the way it was supposed to go. Everything at this point seemed out of control. But in a, in a strange way, the out-of-control way, the crazy and bizarre way that Jesus was dying sort of fit the pattern of his life. As, as his mother, Mary never could reel Jesus in. He always had this sort of edgy, out-of-control aspect to him. It started when he was 12 years old. Jesus almost gave her and, and his father a nervous breakdown when he stayed behind three days in the temple without telling them where he was. When they finally found him, he says, I must be about my father's business. And from the start, it always seemed to Mary, I'm sure, that being about the father's business kind of interfered with her being about a mother's business. The two just didn't seem very compatible. And then there was a time when Mary and Jesus' brothers began to hear some of the wild things that Jesus was saying, some of the claims that he was making. Some of the ways that he was confronting Jewish authority, and, and they were worried about him. The Gospels tell us that they worried that he had maybe lost his mind with some of the stuff he was saying, and they were concerned for his life. And so Mary's maternal instinct would kick in, and she wanted to save her son. 
And so she went out to try to protect him and bring him home. But when she gets there, Jesus just defied his mother and his brothers and said to the audience that was listening to him, this is my family, this is my brothers, sisters, and mother. And in the end, Mary's worst nightmare came true. She couldn't protect him. Jesus always did his own thing. Mary learned in Jesus' life, and now she was learning in his death. You can love Jesus, but you cannot control him. You can love him, but you can't tame him. You can't domesticate him. You can't normalize him. You can't protect him. And as with Mary, it may sometimes cause us great pain, but we too have to accept Jesus on his terms. We too have to accept him as the uncontrollable, untamable, abnormal Lord that he is. That's why he's beautiful. That's why he's beautiful. Going to the cross when you're an omnipotent God is not the normal thing to do. That's why he's beautiful. The promise of God is that if we will refrain from trying to tame him, if we'll refrain from trying to put him into our box of the normal, if we will refrain, like Mary had to learn, refrain from trying to just turn him into a conventional kind of God, a God who is there at our convenience, then he will make our life beautiful in the same sort of untamed way that his was beautiful. So as we look upon the cross tonight, we need to ask, have we, like Mary, perhaps, have we tried to tame Jesus? Have we tried to domesticate Jesus? Have we, have we tried to have a Jesus who nicely fits into, a, a, into our life? Or are we in the position where Mary was at at the end? Where we invite the God who will not be tamed, will not be controlled, will not be tamed, and will not be normal. Have we invited him into our life? To do his work of making our lives beautiful in a self-sacrificial kind of way, the way Jesus' life is. Trampled on the ground You took the fall thought of me above all. Amen. The second Mary I'd like us to reflect on is Mary of Bethany. I love, I love Mary of Bethany. So far as we can tell from the Gospels, she was just a highly unconventional, do-your-own-thing sort of a lady. Whatever came to her to do, she did, without much consideration for what others might think about it. I think Mary of Bethany today, if she was around today, she'd be one of these who like indie films and listen to indie music and just kind of had an alternative lifestyle. She'd be countercultural. And people like Mary... Mary of Bethany, they tend to aggravate people who are rural-oriented. So it's not surprising that in two of the three gospel accounts that we find her being talked about, she's ticking the rural people off. She had a way of, of bothering people. The first episode was the time when Jesus came to her house, the house of Mary and Martha. This is the younger sister of Martha. Now, in the first century... Only men were allowed to sit at the feet of of teachers. Women were supposed to wait on them, especially if uh, the teacher was invited to your house. 
But Mary of Bethany would have nothing to do with such sexist rules. And so when Jesus came to her house, she sat down at his feet right there along with all the men, infuriating her sister Martha, who now assumed all the responsibilities of doing what women are supposed to do. But Jesus commended Mary for her boldness. and basically said, Martha, don't worry about the housework. Don't worry about that, that stuff. Mary has chosen the more important thing. I suspect that Jesus and Mary got along very well because Jesus had a rather unconventional way about himself as well. Mary exhibited an even more radical convention-defying behavior the night before Jesus rode into Jerusalem as he was heading into Jerusalem to be crucified. He again stayed at the house of Mary and Martha. Now, it was customary in those days for the host to anoint the forehead of guests when they would arrive with a little bit of perfume. Showers had not yet been invented, so a little perfume went a long way. And so that was kind of the custom. And it was customary to have a bowl of, of water where people could wash their feet. Or if you had servants, you, the servants would wash the, their, their feet. That was customary. But Mark and John both tell us that when Jesus arrived that night, Mary just did some over-the-top over behavior. She poured a bunch of expensive perfume on Jesus' head, this ointment on Jesus' head. And then she poured a bunch of ointment on Jesus' feet. That, that, that shocking behavior for someone to do in, in the first century, or really in any century. And then, on top of all that, she starts washing the feet of Jesus with her hair. Mixing her hair with that perfume, washing his feet. To make it a little bit more outrageous, this was an extremely rare imported per perfume. It was extremely expensive. Scholars estimate that that kind of perfume, imported from the Himalayas, uh, would have cost about a year's salary. And here Mary is spending the whole thing in this one session on Jesus. Judas, who was the treasurer, kept the purse for this traveling band. He, he got mad. And he said, shouldn't we have sold that and given the proceeds to the poor? But Jesus once again commends Mary for her extravagant idiosyncratic behavior, her extravagant worship. He says this, and John says, let her alone. She's anticipating and honoring the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you. You don't always have me. And then from the Gospel of Mark, we find Jesus say, saying this, truly I tell you, whenever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. When someone died in the first century, it was customary at that time, if you could afford it, to anoint their whole body, head to toe, with perfume. It was a way of showing respect, a way of, of you know, trying to preserve a little dignity, uh, stay off the stench of decomposition. That was customary. And so what Mary was doing to Jesus was really treating him the way you would treat a corpse before burial. And Jesus gives this deed, this remarkable honor of saying that this will always be remembered in honor of her. That she did this outrageous, extravagant act of worship as a preparation for my burial. The question is this. How did Mary know 
that Jesus was going into Jerusalem to die because it's very clear from the Gospels that no one else did. The reason Mary knew was because Jesus had been talking about getting crucified for about the last year. Since he started his journey from, from northern Israel into uh, Jerusalem, he's been talking about how he must go and be crucified. But it's just that the disciples were so locked into their conventional thinking about God and their conventional thinking about the Messiah that that kind of talk went in one ear and out the other. They couldn't hear that. They were convinced that the Messiah was going to be somebody who would ride into Jerusalem victorious, someone who would defeat the Romans, someone who would liberate Israel. And those who had buy into that conventional way of thinking could not hear what Jesus was saying. But Mary... Mary of Bethany, there's nothing conventional about her. She always bucks the crowd. She always sees things a little bit different. She's not bought into the conventional theology of Peter and everybody else. And so when she hears that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to be crucified, she can actually hear it. Probably the one person in the room who really knows what's going on. What Mary couldn't have understood is why Jesus had to die. She loved Jesus, this man who had raised her brother Lazarus from the dead. This man who had affirmed her status as an equal among men. This man who had affirmed her over and over again. She loved Jesus to the point of extravagantly spending a year's salary of of this perfume in one act of worship. She loved Jesus tremendously, but she could not have understood him. But unlike Peter earlier on, she doesn't try to stop Jesus. She trusts Jesus. It broke her heart, but she embraces the mystery of what he's about to do. And she responds with this extravagant love and this extravagant worship. As we gaze on the cross and reflect on the cross tonight, we need to ask ourselves, are we willing to live an unconventional Mary type of life as an act of worship to our Lord? Will we pour out our whole life as a fragrant offering to Jesus in response to the way he's poured out his life for us. Even when we don't understand, even when life doesn't make any sense, even when God doesn't make any sense, even when it means perhaps we have to buck the system and swim upstream in the society, will we respond to the fragrant offering of Jesus' life for us by pouring our lives out in worship to him? Uh, We're going to take up the offering as we worship with this next song. Uh, We do this acknowledging that everything we have comes from God, and we just seek his leading and guidance on how he would have us steward his resources. So pray with me here. Father, we acknowledge that every good gift comes from the Father above. We thank you for it. And now we offer this up. In response to your pouring yourself out to us, we offer this up. Lead us and guide us to further the work of your kingdom. In Jesus' name. Amen. The saints and angels song Oh, love of God, how rich and pure How measureless and strong It shall forevermore endure The saints and angels I'd like us to think 
now about this third Mary, Mary Magdalene. Aside from Mary, the mother of Jesus, this is the Mary we know most about in Scripture. Tradition tells us that she was a former prostitute, though the biblical text never says that. It goes back to a very early tradition. And some scholars argue that there's some evidence that, in fact, that was the case. Usually, in the ancient world, when someone's location was attached to their name as a surname, as a last name, as is the case with Mary Magdalene, she was from Magdala, usually that's because there's something about the location that is, is significant to who they were. One of the things we know about Magdala is that it was known for its promiscuity and prostitution. And so it could very well be that the reason that name followed Mary around was because she was the prostitute who was freed and delivered by Jesus Christ. We can't be certain. What we are certain of is that this lady had seven demons in her, and Jesus freed her from those demons. Some scholars argue that the the number seven there in that cultural context just denoted fullness. So she was full of demons. She was thoroughly demonized. For years, Mary would have existed. However long she was demonized, we're not told a word about how that happened. It's significant that when Jesus cast the demons out of Mary, he doesn't do any kind of background check to figure out how, she, how they got there, what kind of sin might have been in her life. He never goes there. He just sees the need and meets the need. And that's what he did with Mary. But for however long she was demonized, probably for years, she, was, she existed in a tormented prison. If she acted anything like other demonized people did in the Gospels and yet today act, she would have been considered crazy. These are the sorts of people today who would be locked up. This prison that she was in of demon oppression would have kept her from being integrated into the rest of society. There's another early church tradition that says she was exceptionally beautiful. And that might explain why she would be a prostitute in that a person in that culture who doesn't have all of her mental capacities, who's demon oppressed and yet is very beautiful, well, they get used. Mary was somebody who I suspect had been used a lot. Somehow, some way, she met Jesus. And Jesus had set her free. Jesus gave her back her life and freed her from that asylum in her own mind. And once that happened, Mary followed, Mary followed Jesus wherever he went. She's always there, town to town. She did not want to leave his side. Mary had never known a man like this. A man who loved her for her, for who she was, instead of her body. A man who looked at her and didn't have a negotiating price in his head. Never had Mary known a man who showed her respect and ascribed worth to her. Why wouldn't Mary leave his side? I, I, I believe Mary never felt more at home than when she was around Jesus. Something about the look in his eyes, something about... Just the way he talked to her. She never felt more peace, more love, more acceptance, more forgiveness than when she was around Jesus. Never felt more clean and human and herself than when she was around Jesus. Jesus had that kind of quality, that kind of magnetic pull on all sorts of people. So what was Mary Magdalene thinking and feeling as she witnessed Jesus being beaten and mocked and whipped and crucified? How terrible that must have been 
for this woman to watch the one man, whoever truly loved her, get abused like this, spit on, mocked, and beaten. How terrible it must have been to watch the one man who showed her respect have to be humiliated carrying the cross through the town and the jeering crowds. How terrible to watch this one man who ascribed worth to her to have to face the humiliation of being stripped of his clothes and suffer the agony of spikes in his hands and in his ankles. Imagine how confusing that must have been for Mary Magdalene, just as it was for the mother of Jesus. Undoubtedly, as the world became dark, as Jesus was being crucified, Mary felt some of that old familiar darkness that she'd been free of. She felt it now enveloping her Savior. She had to be wondering, how could this happen? The one who freed her and so many other people from the powers of darkness is now being enveloped in darkness. How could the one who freed so many now be in bondage? How could this person who was so close to God and reflected the love of God now be abandoned by God? For the Old Testament itself says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. If you hang on a cross, it can only mean that you're cursed of God. So much confusing, so much questions, so much pain. And yet, Mary Magdalene was powerless to do anything about it. She couldn't stop it. She couldn't help Jesus. And yet what's amazing is that she, as well as these other two Marys, they're there. They can't do anything. But they're there. It's even somewhat risky to be there. John tells us that the authorities had put out this word that anyone who was, had fellowship with Jesus, who followed Jesus... Uh, should be reported. It was risky to be there, and yet the women are there. It's not because they can accomplish anything. It's just because they love Jesus. The men have fled in fear, but the women are there because they love Jesus. Because they don't think that a man who loved like this and lived like this should die alone. And so they're just there to bear witness. Mary doesn't care if it puts her own life in risk. She can't do anything, but she can't leave. Her only reason for being there is love. They maybe believe at this moment that God has forsaken Jesus, but they're not going to forsake Jesus. So Mary Magdalene forces herself to watch something that had to be unbearable, but she will not look away. Her love constrains her to be bound to her beloved to the very end, even when nothing in the world makes sense. At this point, Mary couldn't have known, as none of them could have known what was going on there. They don't know why this is happening. They, Mary couldn't have understand that Jesus was freely entering into this diabolical darkness, the very darkness he had set her free from. But he's freely entering into that and suffering at the hands of that darkness in order that now she and everybody else who will believe in him need never experience that darkness again. She couldn't have understand that Jesus was freely entering into this God-forsakenness that, so that neither Mary or anybody else would ever need to feel forsaken by God again. She couldn't understand that Jesus was freely allowing himself to be devoured by the demonic powers that once held Mary so captive so that neither she or anyone else would ever have to be subject to the demonic powers again. Mary didn't know any of that. Any of that. She couldn't have known any of that, but she loved, which is why she was there. 
even as the demonic darkness that she was so familiar with in her pre-Jesus time now is once again encroaching upon her beloved. She didn't know. Three days later, she'd begin to know. Three days later, we find that Mary Magdalene is still there. She and the other women have gone to the tomb in hopes of being able to do the customary anointing of perfume. As I said earlier, it's their way of showing some respect to the beloved, staying off the inevitable decay and the stench of death. Mary Magdalene and the other two Marys, as well as some other women, make their way to the tomb, only to find that it's empty. But it's significant that the first one honored to see the risen Lord is Mary Magdalene. She gets a private audience. Before he appears to others, gets a private audience with her. And now Mary begins to understand. I'm sure it would take a while to get the full understanding, but now it begins to settle in what the cross really means. The cross means that God's love that we just sang about is too great to keep him out of darkness. The cross means that God, out of his love, is willing to dive in to the darkest recesses of the human heart, the darkest hell that we can possibly create. The cross means that when we feel afflicted, when we feel judged, when we feel lost, when we're full of doubt, when we feel like we are in hell, we've got to know that God is there. That can't keep the love of God out. When our mind is paralyzed with confusion and our heart maybe is paralyzed with pain and maybe even our bodies are paralyzed with disease, we've got to know that God is there. Nothing can keep the love of God, the love of God expressed on Calvary. Nothing can keep that kind of love out. When our child dies and we enter the nightmare of life or when our spouse leaves us or when our friends bail on us or even when we're facing our own death, We've got to know that the love of God is there. The Calvary love of God is there. Nothing can keep the love of God out. When we failed again and the devil condemns us and when we're overwhelmed by shame and guilt, we've got to know that the love of God is there. When you've reached the bottom, look down and you'll find Jesus Christ looking up at you. You can't go to any depth where you won't find the love of God. You can't go to any width. You can't go to any place. You can't go to any depth of evil where you won't find the love of God is already there there to redeem you, there to forgive you, there to restore you, there to once again do as he did with Mary Magdalene, free you from the darkness. Look into your eyes and communicate that one-of-a-kind kind of a love that restores us and gives our life meaning. When darkness encroaches, when life is insane, when it seems like God has forsaken us or loved ones, we've got to remember what Mary learned, and that is that God is there. He's in the darkness. He entered into her darkness and freed her. He entered into the darkness of the world and freed the world. The love of God is greater still than any mortal tongue can tell. Paul prays that we would know the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of the love of God. And then he immediately adds, that passes all understanding. In other words, you can't know it. He prays that we would know what is unknowable. But just when you think, just when you realize you can't ever comprehend it, you can't ever exaggerate it, you can't put enough superlatives in front of it or behind it. Just when you realize the best you can do with the love of God is to say, etc., 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 now you're beginning to understand the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of the love of God revealed on the cross that passes all understanding. The three Marys and all the women and eventually even the men 
finally got that point. The cross means forgiveness. The cross means restoration. The cross is forever the eternal expression of God's self-sacrificial love. It's forever God's price tag on us. You are worth this. I did this for you. And then most amazingly, the Bible tells us they didn't do it reluctantly, begrudgingly. For Mary Magdalene, Mary of Bethany, for his own mother, and for every one of us, the Bible says he did it for joy. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the suffering of the cross. For the joy of being with me throughout all eternity, he died. For the joy of being with you. For the joy, the possible joy of being with every person who's serving time right now for whatever they've done. In the hopes of redeeming the worst of the worst, the most judged of society, it gave him joy to offer up his life for each and every one of us. Without the assurance that we would reciprocate, it gave him joy. With Mary and the other Marys, we now have to just, as we reflect on the cross, apply it personally. He did this for me. And then we respond with that extravagant worship. Out of love, we are there as Mary Magdalene was. We do not look away. We do not go away, even in the darkness. And we allow him, we invite him in to envelop us in his love, to transform us by his love, to, by, to re renew us by his love, to heal us by his love, and to transform his beauty into us. That's what the cross is all about. We're now going to go into another time of worship. so frustrating because there's no words that could possibly express uh, the height and the width and the depth of his love. We try, but it just doesn't come close. Can't put 
any kind of boundary around it. You can't exaggerate it. If you were to express it numerically, you'd have to put it infinity to the infinite power to the infinite power. It, it, it knows no bounds. It has, you can't comprehend it. It's untamable. It's uncontrollable. Uh, it, it's undefinable. It's unlimitable. It's, it, it's glorious. It's marvelous. It's stupendous. It's fantastic. And it's real. It's real. It's real. You dare to believe. Can you dare to believe? This, this is the challenge of the gospel. To dare to believe that God is that lovely. That God is that beautiful. That God is that glorious. That God, that God would do that. The almighty God, the infinite God, the creator of everything, holds every molecule in existence. That he would become a human being. Cross that infinite distance and then go to the cross and take the mockery and the shame and the humiliation. Take on the sins of the world. Why? Because he's just whipped out in love over you. He's just that, he's, just, he's madly, madly crazy in love with me and you. And every if and but excuse you could come up with is, is, is less than, than a speck of dust. And, and God's like this avalanche, this tsunami that just rolls over it. Just let him, just let him in. Can we just, you know, it's not Easter yet, but it's, we know the outcome here, so it's kind of hard not to let Easter bleed over a little bit. But can we just thank the Lord for what he did for us on the cross? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen, 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 amen. Forever and ever, eternal God, Lord of God, Lamb of God, power of God. You are great. You are wise. You are lovely. You are beautiful. He's beautiful. He's beautiful. He's beautiful. He's beautiful. Gorgeous. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. I, I want to just end with, with having the altar open here. Can we sing another worship song? And if you want, if God's not done with what you, you know, feel like you want to stay, you can stand, you can sit, you can come up here. Uh, I'd like us to take our conversations out in the gathering area for those who maybe want to stay and worship for a few more songs. Um, you feel dismissed whenever you, you want to leave. Uh, we have our Easter service tomorrow night at 5 and then on Sunday at 9 and 11. I encourage you to come back and celebrate the resurrection. So let's continue the worship, Lord. God bless you. See you later.